0: Okay, beautiful nerds, I've gotten hundreds of requests from listeners who were introduced to the show after the 99PI Challenge coin was offered, and a few who just missed it for whatever reason, and they're all begging for an opportunity to get their hands on a coin. And why wouldn't they? It's a glorious object, and they look great in the foreground when you're taking pictures of plaques. So we've now sent out all the coins from the last drive, and we have a few left over, I'm only going to offer this once, just during this episode, until we run out. If you want the original first-generation 99PI challenge coin, no more of this kind will ever be minted. Go to radiotopia.fm slash coin and sign up to be a monthly supporter of 99% Invisible and Radiotopia. This is the last chance. We're going to have the page up until we run out of coins. This offer could last a day, it could last a week, it could last an hour, I have no idea. The coin is a symbol of my gratitude for your ongoing support for the work that we do here at 99% Invisible, and when you have that coin in the coin pocket of your jeans, I know that you're going to feel proud that you're part of this community. Go to radiotopia.fm slash coin to join us. Thanks. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. In 1883, Samuel Clemens, alias Mark Twain, published his memoir, Life on the Mississippi. In it, Twain describes his love for the Great River and how it captured his imagination from boyhood. In fact, the pen name Mark Twain is probably a reference to what a deckhand on a Mississippi River boat would call out to indicate a depth of two fathoms. These are recordings from a real steamboat worker from 1939. Twain would have heard this
1: call many times. As a young man, he worked as a steamboat pilot on the Mississippi. This was a job that required him to learn everything there is to know about the river. That's Ryan Kyloff.
0: He's a reporter at New Orleans Public Radio.
1: Working on steamboats, Twain would come to memorize every shoal, bend, rock island, bluff reef, wind reef, eddy, snag, sandbar. And he would learn how all those things changed, when the river was high or when it was low, in calm breezes, high winds, at nighttime and daytime. Twain wrote, The
0: Face of the Water became a wonderful book.
2: There never was so wonderful a book written by a
0: man. Mark Twain loved working on the river, but he found it came with a price. As he gained knowledge about the workings of the mississippi he began to lose something too his sense of wonder about the great river twain writes about this in his memoir
2: i had lost something which could never be restored to me while i lived all the grace the beauty the poetry had gone out of the majestic river
0: but not everyone had such a complicated relationship with the river for many people who live near the Mississippi, it was simple. The river was a force to be reckoned with.
3: When you're talking about the Mississippi River, to me it's not something scenic. It's this great force of enormous power. This is John Barry, an expert on the river's history.
1: He's served on the levee board of New Orleans and has written extensively about the Mississippi. And the thing to know about the river, especially back then...
3: Was that it flooded, all the time? A river flood, or at least on a flood like the Mississippi, you can see it coming for weeks. You fight it for weeks.
0: And in 1927, people knew the river was coming for them.
1: For nine straight months, the middle of the country had been getting hit nearly nonstop with rain, and the previous winter there had been tremendous snowfall upriver in Minnesota, which was now washing downstream.
0: The levees were strained. And in February of 1927, they started giving out.
3: 27 27th Flood was probably worse than Katrina. Roughly a million Americans, almost 1% of the entire population of the country at the time, uh, were flooded out of their homes. That spring, 145 levees along the
1: lower river failed. 27,000 square miles across 10 states were put underwater.
0: It's unclear how many people died, because for one thing, official counts didn't include black people. But the death toll was likely upwards of a thousand.
1: On April 30th, 1927, then-Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover discussed the flood on a national radio broadcast.
2: Everything humanly possible is being done by men of magnificent courage and skill. It is a battle against the oncoming rush. It is a great battle which the
3: engineers are directing. And you've got to remember, this was enormous news. It dominated uh, the front pages. Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic in the middle of the flood. That's the only thing that knocked it off the top of the news. And after the flight, the flood was back on.
0: In the wake of the flood, Congress essentially declared war on the Mississippi River by passing a law called the Flood Control Act of 1928.
3: A uh, Part of the 28 Act involves studying basically every major river basin.
0: A river basin is all the land that water flows through on its way to a river. So, for example, if it rains in South Dakota, anywhere in the whole state, that rain will eventually make its way to the Mississippi which means that South Dakota is part of the Mississippi River Basin, even though it's actually pretty far from the Mississippi River. In 1928, Congress decided to study rivers and their basins, especially the Mississippi and its enormous basin, which includes more than 30 states. And not just study them, but also change them. The Flood Control Act
1: charged the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers with designing and executing a plan to corral and maneuver the Mississippi, to better manage its ebbs and flows, so that future disasters could be averted.
0: But the Army Corps of Engineers faced a dilemma. The river control system that they had been tasked with creating needed to be huge, much bigger than anything they'd ever built before. And they didn't want to just jump into building something until they knew it would work. They started constructing scale models
1: of different parts of the Mississippi River Basin in order to understand the mechanics of the river. The earliest ones were just ditches cut into the dirt with water running through them. The models helped forecast flooding in St. Louis, the impact of a dam construction in Ohio,
0: the workings of spillways in New Orleans and Florida. But the Army Corps of Engineers wanted a way to test the entire river system all at once. And so in 1941, they started building a model to represent all 1.25 million square miles of the Mississippi River Basin. When you think of a scale model, you might be thinking of something you can
1: peer into at a museum. Not so with this one. This would be bigger than anything that could ever fit into a display case.
4: It is a jungle out there.
0: The Mississippi Basin model, located just outside of Jackson, Mississippi, is a scale replica of the entire basin region, an area that spans from Appalachia to the Rocky Mountains, nearly half of the continental United States.
4: Um, we'll have to crawl through here. Sure. I hope we don't get your equipment messed up. Uh,
1: It's been through some stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. (laughs) I went out to see the model with a woman named Janie Vaughn. She used to work at the model as a technician before it was decommissioned in the early 90s. Janie showed me how to sneak in, right through a wall of poison ivy.
4: And I just always assume that any snakes will, you know, kind of run off.
1: We're also there with former project engineer Wayne O'Neill. I'm Wayne (laughs) O'Neill, glad to meet you. Now that we've made it through the ivy, we make our way to this enormous clearing.
4: And this is the beautiful Mississippi River Basin, Mississippi Basin model. Wow. In all its glory.
3: Whoa.
0: Ryan is looking down at a three dimensional map, a completely man made landscape full of hills and ridges and a big winding riverbed. Every foot of the model represents 2,000 feet in the real world.
5: If you take a good step,
0: you stepped off a mile. It's hard to overstate how enormous this model is. It's about two and a half times the size of Disneyland, 125 city blocks.
1: I saw some pictures online, but this does not prepare you to see the thing.
4: Yeah. Wow. It's awesome, isn't it? It's, totally. just, it's just awesome.
1: You just can't take it all in at once. Janie and Wayne tell me that you can really only see all the edges of it if you climb up this four-story observation tower. There's also a water tower looming above the model, with dozens of pipes shooting off in every direction into pump houses and spigots. These big, hulking machines and strange-looking instruments dot the landscape.
4: And what they had envisioned when they built this, it was just fantastic.
1: Back when the model was operational, there were little signs for pretty much every town in the region.
4: Mm Mm-hmm. There would be one for Vicksburg and Rolling Fork and all along.
1: The signs are gone now, but Janie still knows the geography of this place by heart.
4: We're around Baton Rouge, so you can go from Baton Rouge up to St. Louis in about... 10 minutes.
0: The Army Corps of Engineers started work on the Mississippi Basin model in 1941, and at first, they faced a massive labor shortage.
5: The start of the model came about during World War II. No labor was available. Everybody was off at war. There wasn't troops or people here to do it. So they built a BLW camp here to supply the labor.
0: German prisoners of war helped with every facet
5: of the construction. And they did the groundwork and the the topography layout and the drainage system for the model. By 1949,
1: the model was ready. A staff of 600 engineers and technicians would calibrate the model by recreating past floods in the region. Then they'd forecast new floods. They would run thousands of gallons of water through the model, recording the water's height and movements. After it was all done, they'd change a few variables and run it again.
0: More sandbags over here, open this spillway over there.
1: They played around with the model, gathering data on how each piece of the river system affected the whole. Then they could use that data to come up with better plans for the future. Like they did in 1952, when Council Bluffs and Sioux City, Iowa were threatened with a flood. In
5: 1952, the model predicted where the levees were going to overtop.
0: Overtop as in where the water would spill over the levee. And so they ran the model night and day as they were fighting the flood.
5: What they were doing is saying, it's not going to overtop here. It'll overtop here, put your sandbags, put your work in this area. And it predicted stages within two-tenths of a foot. Meaning the model mimicked the actual behavior of the Mississippi to within inches. It was credited to saving over $50 million in damage in 52 money.
0: That's about half a billion dollars in today's money.
5: The Mississippi Basin
1: model was amazingly accurate at dealing with these incredibly complex, hyper-specific problems. The model saved the government millions and millions of dollars while it was in operation, and spared people from the kinds of disastrous flooding
0: that had happened
1: back in 1927.
0: But 200 acres of pipes and pumps and machinery and earth movers and a staff of hundreds were expensive to maintain. The cost got even harder to justify after the advent of the computer.
5: Late 60s, early 70s, there was a big push to go into numerical models. And that means computers? Computers, right. Uh, Math model. The numerical model people and the core looked at the model and said, well, we don't need it anymore. Too expensive. Too expensive.
0: Gradually, the Mississippi Basin model lost its funding.
5: We saw the handwriting on the wall, and it was closing its down.
0: The computer models weren't as good, but they were good enough, and the Army Corps could not, or would not, pay for the gigantic river basin model anymore. The model was
1: used in a diminished capacity until 1993, when it was closed for good. Today, it's completely derelict.
5: Damn, this place is depressing. Isn't it? <laughs> Cramp. Every time I come out here, it's worse. I know. It's a lot of labor. There's a lot of love and effort and went into this thing, and it is just abandoned. I
1: feel like if I was a teenager, this would be my number one come-get-high-and-get-in-trouble spot. Exactly. Exactly. The pipes and the pump houses are all rotting and rusting away. And in the model, the earth and mud and water have all dried up. Now it's just a disheveled mess of concrete and wire mesh.
5: I've seen the original design drawings of this place. Those engineers were engineers. I would be doing good to sharpen their pencil.
4: You know, the minds that came up with all those pieces of equipment, with the knowledge they had in the 40s, and they're coming up with ways to protect people and make this stuff work. You just don't see engineering feats like that every day.
0: Now, in a normal public radio story, this would be the part where we would bemoan the death of craftsmanship and remark on all the things we've lost by choosing virtual things over physical ones. But before you get too misty-eyed, you have to see where Janie Vaughn works now. How's it going? Good. How are y'all doing? Pretty good.
4: Hey, did you get any uh, poison ivy the other day? I didn't. Did you? I, I didn't.
0: About two weeks after going to the basin model, Ryan met Janie at the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center. Erdick, for short, in Vicksburg, Mississippi.
1: I keep forgetting that you actually work for the Army and, like, badge and the real deal. <laughs> it's not a joke. Yeah. Walking around Erdick feels like being on the back lot of a Hollywood studio. There's row after row of big hangars full of miniature landscapes.
4: There's hangars over there and hangars over there and hangars with model and model and model and model just lined up.
1: Engineers zip around in trucks and golf carts. They test all kinds of things here, including a few things that have nothing to do with water. In one hangar, I saw engineers developing a temporary airplane runway. They were driving over it with a modified dump truck on 14-foot tires to simulate the weight of a plane. But mostly, Ertic builds scale models of rivers and dams and water projects, albeit smaller, more manageable ones than the Mississippi model.
4: So we're looking at Bluestone Dam in Hinton, West Virginia. It's on the uh, New River.
1: A place that actually did flood
0: recently, and the Army Corps' models help to manage that flood. The Army Corps also uses the models as a public relations tool. The Corps invites people from local communities over to Ertic so they can see how new projects like building new navigation channels or removing old dams will affect the area. Engineers at Ertic say they take community feedback and incorporate that into their designs.
1: But here's the most surprising thing I learned about these physical models. The reason that engineers continue to rely on them is because today, in 2016, we still do not have the computers or the science to do all the things that physical models can do.
2: There's actually this realm of human knowledge and of physical behavior and how the Earth works that we don't understand. This is
1: Stanford Gibson, a senior hydraulic engineer for the Army Corps. This is a guy with a Ph.D. and three master's degrees. And even the math he can do isn't sufficient to fully describe what happens in a river.
2: I think that there needs to be a little bit of scientific humility to say, well, maybe some of these processes are outside of our reach, or at least outside of the reach of our generation. Are we going to get there? Well, we'll get closer.
0: Believe it or not, hydraulic engineering gets into some of the most complicated math there is. Allegedly, when Albert Einstein's son, Hans, said he wanted to study how sediment moves underwater, Einstein asked him why he wanted to work on something so complicated.
1: The physics involved happened on such a small scale that we still haven't built equations complex enough to capture them. And so Stanford Gibson, a world-class numerical modeler, is actually one of the most ardent supporters of physical modeling. Because a physical model doesn't require equations at all. The physical model will simulate the processes on its own. And even as Stanford-Gibson develops new numerical
2: models, the process is inherently tied to the natural world. When I start a new project, I go and I rent a kayak and I float the river because there are too many processes that you don't understand that you can't represent in equations. For
1: Stanford, the more time you spend on a river, the more you learn its secrets. Kind of like Mark Twain. And all those years he spent working on steamboats, learning to read the Mississippi like a book. You know, did you ever read Mark Twain, Life on the Mississippi? I did. So you remember that whole like maybe 100 pages near the beginning where he's talking about the Mississippi for him was like this magical, mystical thing imbued with. Mystery, and that once he learned the river, that was lost to him forever.
2: I remember that moment exactly, because that is exactly not my experience of science. Um, The idea that science demystifies the world, um, I just don't understand that. I feel like the kind of deeper down the scientific rabbit hole I go, the bigger and grander and more magical the world seems.
0: And the same goes for going down the rabbit holes of history and engineering and mathematics and design. If there's one thing I believe more than anything, it's that knowledge creates wonder. If you want a two-inch, round chunk of black nickel to signify that you also believe that knowledge creates wonder... Go to radiotopia.fm slash coin and become a $5 monthly donor. Once we give out the remaining stock of the 2015 99PI Challenge Coins, that is it. They are gone. I'm not going to mint anymore, so get in on it now. And to all the original coin-carrying donors, thanks for everything. You make this show possible, and I love all the pictures that you take of the coin around the world. To join the ranks of the beautiful nerds and support this radio program, go to radiotopia.fm slash coin. 99% Invisible was produced this week by Ryan Kyloth, Sam Greenspan, and Delaney Hall, with Sharif Yousef, Katie Mingle, Kurt Colstead, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. Mark Twain was played by Ken Teutsch, and Herbert Hoover was Sharif Yousef. A lot of the music in this episode came from some of our favorite, favorite musicians, including Lullitone, Melodium, and OK Akumi. You can get a full list at 99pi.org. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced on Radio Row. In beautiful downtown Oakland, California. 99% Invisible is supported in part by Squarespace. Whether the story behind your passion is out of the ordinary or simply out of this world, you should tell it in an unforgettable way. Squarespace helps you do just that with the only websites designed to showcase what makes your passion worth pursuing. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com slash invisible. You should. Squarespace. This episode is part of PRX's Stories in Science Project, supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation to enhance public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. And finally, this show and Radiotopia from PRX are made possible by our fine coin-carrying donors, whose ranks you can join at radiotopia.fm slash coin, The Knight Foundation, and Mailchimp. This week on the 99PI Mailchimp Newsletter parks aren't always pristine, untouched environments. Sometimes the reason they are parks is because they're too toxic to put a house on. Get that story and subscribe at 99pi.org, but to send better email of your own, go to MailChimp.com. You can find the show and like the show on Facebook. We're all on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Spotify. But if you want to get in on the last chance to get one of the remaining 2015 99PI Challenge coins, go to radiotopia.fm slash coin or find the donate button at 99pi.org.